welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Shane Anderson. Shane, thank you very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today I'm joined by Shane Anderson. Shane, thank you very much for coming on. Jake, great to be a part of this. Uh, it's a fantastic podcast series that you've been doing for a long time, so it's it's nice to be involved. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for your time. And I want to hone our discussion around racing and wagering today. And I think everyone would be you know, very interested in your perspective, maybe even more so now that you've, you've stepped away a little bit from the space. And before we get stuck into some of those topics, how did you find your way into to racing and wagering? Were you pushed through the, the betting side or was it something about the theater and the, the enjoyment of the, the racing that brought you into this caper? It was a combination of both, Jake. Um, you know, I come from a family of, of punters. Um, my parents, my grandparents, they, they love going to the races and having a bet. Uh, it was a good Australian Catholic family, and I think that's part and parcel of, of what you do. But um, certainly a lot of my formative years, my spare time uh, on weekends, I'd play sport in the morning, uh, and then I'd go to the races with Dad. And I fell in love with the horse. Uh, I would go to the greyhounds. I fell in love with the, the greyhounds as well. Um, but importantly, I, I developed a, an understanding and an appetite and a passion for the punting side of it. Um, as I progressed through school, I went to a, a, a college in, in Melbourne in Victoria, uh, St. Bernard's College, which is well known as being a sporting school, but very much a, a school of punters. Um, and quite often we'd skip classes in the afternoon and go off to the races if they're at Mooney Valley or Flemington or, or sneak off to the TAB and try and get a bet on. Uh, and it just grew there, from there because I always had a, a great love for the story of the sport, but I also had a great love for the gambling side of things. And and that's how I got involved. Um, and, you know, that was the, the fire in the belly, I suppose, to, to make it a career. So I recall Channel 522, TVN, I think it was called, and that was the outlet. That was the, the programming, the racing and, and betting programming that existed. And and it almost seemed like overnight that terminated and everything shifted to, to racing.com. And, and that really transformed pretty quickly into a powerhouse with all the personalities, all the betting content, obviously the racing content. Um, social, you know, the digital platform, the app, and everything that comes with that. It probably didn't happen overnight, but just give me your perspective on on that phase, that transformation, and, and how things progressed throughout that period, because I know you were closely involved in that, and it must have been a, a lot of work to get to that point. Yeah, sure. I might just take a step back just to, to give you a bit of insight. So from my perspective, uh, why I thought it was important for, for me to play a part in racing.com. Uh, when I first started in my professional career, I worked in sports administration, so I was involved in a lot of major sporting events, whether it be, uh, you know, the AFL, uh, which I spent uh, a couple of years working for. I was lucky enough to work at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. I worked at the MCG. I worked across a, a lot of sports, and I really got a passion for the management and the administration of, of sports. And then I, I became, when I was working at the AFL, I became good mates with uh, an Australian television broadcaster, Tony Jones, which led me to... Basically, we were chatting one day and I said, you know, I've always had this hunger, this passion to be in the, the racing media, the sports media, more than being in the administration side. And, and a few things opened up that when the radio station in Australia, SEN, first launched, 
uh, we started a, a racing program, uh, which we called Off the Rails. It was Tony Jones, myself, and, and retired jockey Simon Marshall, who's a great media personality. And that show built a, a cult following that then allowed more and more media opportunities to come my way, that eventually I was able to, to take the punt on myself as a media personality and step away from sports administration. But the hunger and the desire and the knowledge of being able to understand how a, a, a media environment or a sports environment can actually be uh, the business side of things as well as the, the content talent side of things was always there. So I started working for the radio station RSN, which is owned by the industry in Melbourne. So it's owned by the Greyhounds, the Thoroughbreds and the Harness Racing Industries. And I had a show which was going really well called Racing Ahead. And we were building some really, really significant content. And it was became a, you know, a must listen program if you were involved in, in racing or if you're involved in, in the wagering environment. So back where you touch on that show uh, I'd been doing for for four years, five years. So around 2014, a decision was made by the Victorian industry to start racing.com. Now, as by its name, it's it's a digital platform to begin with. But within six months of uh, being in operation, the, the, the broadcast landscape changed. So TBN, which had the rights to broadcast uh, both New South Wales and Victorian uh, thoroughbred racing, basically blew up. The, the board decided it couldn't operate anymore because it was just too much of a, a factional uh, issue. So a decision was made that racing.com then had to morph itself from being a uh, digital platform to becoming a fully-fledged media business, and that included having free-to-air broadcast television components and so on. So I originally went to racing.com as, as chief uh, journalist or, you know, initially was there to, to create a lot of the content. Uh, but very quickly, it was determined that um, I would also not only have to play a role as a presenter of, of, of the broadcast, but also step up and, and take a, a leadership role, which eventually led to me becoming editor-in-chief and, and general manager of content. So it all happened very quickly. And I think people don't pay enough credit to how Racing.com evolved and, and the level of uh, content that it was able to provide in a very short period of time. Because there aren't too many businesses I know that have to make such a rapid transformation in a very uh, you know condensed period, so it was very exciting. Um, I think it's helped set up racing um, in Australia in a way that is significantly different to any other part of the world. I mean, Racing.com is is the only free to wear seven day a week, fifty two week a year racing or, or sport channel that exists on free to wear television anywhere in the world. So it's been a remarkable achievement, and it was it was quite fabulous from my perspective to be able to play a part in that from its development. What was your mantra at the time? Obviously, you know, being in charge and leading the way there and, and trying to develop this platform at the same time, manage and, and evaluate, assess and juggle all of the different participants and, and interests that go into racing and wagering has got to be tough. Obviously, the, the, the betting side and the critical funding element that comes with that is, is obvious. And uh, you need to obviously balance that with jockeys and trainers and owners, retired horses, studs and so on. There's There's plenty going on. So... I'm I'm just curious how you went about uh, balancing all those different things, you know, all at once. Uh, I'm sure it was a, a tricky time and then trying to figure all that out. It was a challenge, um, you know, so having oversight of all of the content um, across the, the multi-platform aspect of the business, it is a challenge because uh, a business like racing.com, it's owned by the Victorian thoroughbred industry. It was in a partnership with Channel 7, the, the major or seven networkers, uh, uh, Seven uh, Network, which is sort of the main broadcasting channel, certainly was when I was in Australia. There were a lot of challenges, but you had, um, I suppose, many masters wanting a piece of the puzzle. So you've got punters wanting content 
done in a particular way. You've got owners wanting content in a particular way, breeders, trainers, jockeys, general fans. Uh, their content needs don't always align. So you've got to try and tick as many boxes in the coverage as possible. Um, so you're giving each audience segment a level of destination points. And part of that is, yeah, you've just got to understand that no one is going to come to your channel and get a complete 100% satisfaction rating every time they're on there because it's just it's it's virtually impossible because if you're a high level punter you were wanting uh, types of information that a breeder would certainly not value as as highly um, so it's it's hard but you've just got to make sure that you're covering as many areas as possible but I think that point where I, I mentioned about having uh, destination points for people so you create programs or you can create ideas or, or segments in live broadcasts that people know will be there and that's where they're going to get their fix. I think it's really important through that process that you also make sure you've got the right talent structure. Uh, so it's making sure it's the right mix of, of established talent, new talent, people who have got credibility when they're on, on the camera talking to you about all things racing, that helps. But I think that the content strategy of making sure that you've got the right mix of editorial around wagering, around features, that goes a long way to satisfying the needs of the audience as, as much as possible. So it is a challenge. You're never going to get it right for everyone, but you've got to try and tick as many boxes as possible. And what about the engagement side of things? Because, you know, I think certainly there's a, there's a sentiment now that, that that's being lost a little bit. And then racing's place certainly on a Saturday afternoon is not the same. There's obviously far more vehicles for entertainment. Um, certainly sport seems to be taking up some of that, that share, but I still talk to many people and the, the theater of racing, um, engaging in, in the superstars, especially, or in some of those bigger race days and, you know, watching Chautauqua finish off down the outside or, or winks and those Cox plates and these types of, uh, events and the theater behind that is still at a, you know, very, very high level. However, there is some sort of challenge when it comes to racing overall and, and capturing the hearts and minds of, of the next generation or the, the current generation. So, how did you go about that side of things, given you know some of the things we've already talked about and the challenges that do exist? Uh, how big of a part was the overall engagement aspect? The one thing racing's got as an extraordinary advantage is that it's got an animal that is, that is utterly beautiful and, and people enjoy watching. You know, the, a horse at full flight is a sight to behold. So racing's got this wonderful ability to, to showcase an animal in partnership with a human in a way that is is just it's lovely to see. Now you touched on elements of doom and gloom around racing. I I, I look at it in a slightly different way. Uh, racing certainly has many challenges, but there's always opportunity. Um, so when you you've got an animal that is as beautiful as the horse, you can get some wonderful visuals that are easy to resonate. Uh, you've just got to look at certain times of the year, particularly in Australia, around that uh, August September period, or or in the Northern Hemisphere around uh, the period from January through to, to April, when new foals are being born. Social media channels are flooded with pictures of, of these wonderful new uh, uh, newborn foals that are going to be the next uh, stars of the turf. You know, people care about that type of thing. But to me, the, the biggest challenge racing has is that um, at the moment it is the most regulated wagering option globally. Racing exists in Europe, Australasia, the US, North and South America, Asia, Africa, the list goes on. It's a very traditional sport. It hasn't really evolved much in 300 years. Um, in still in, in many regions around the world, it's the main wagering opportunity. But I think the big challenge racing has, and this goes back to your point of trying to make it as engaging as possible, the big challenge racing has is, is around generational change. 
you know, racing is a slow moving beast when it comes to innovation and also meeting customer needs and wants, and that adds to the challenge. But I think part of the, the real challenge for racing is the next generation. So we talk about Generation Z, you know, Gen Z or Gen Alpha, they're going to be less likely to support racing than perhaps any previous generations. They've got a, a different social license to how they see things. I've been reading a lot of data on this in recent months, and it suggests that those generations are actually anti-animals being used in sport and entertainment. So their entertainment drivers are vastly different than my generation or, or, or older. And they're not just anti-animals in sport, they're anti-animals when it comes to food groups and, and all those sort of things. And there was a piece of uh, research that was uh, released recently by a company called Morning um, Consult, which are a data intelligence and customer, mar uh, customer marketing research company. Not talking about, you know, 53% of, of Gen Zers, they identify as sport fans, but that's comparing to 63% of, of all adults and 69% of millennials. So the point I'm getting at, racing's great challenge is it's not making itself appealing to the generations coming through that within the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years are going to be the main spenders in a commercial environment. So that's the big challenge for racing. It's not just trying to make it the sport uh, the sport palatable as a wagering and entertainment option now, it's got a huge challenge for the road ahead where the next generations are, are less likely than ever before to actually have an interest in the sport. As a racing fan, and obviously you have the, the business acumen experience and, and skill set inside of the industry, but more so as a fan, what are some of the things that you would like to see tried or some of the ideas you think are worth pursuing? Because, you know, there is a problem to address and, it's not an easy one, uh, and I'm sure people are aware of it. And if they're addressing it, then it seems to be in, in limited capacity at this point. But it's far more difficult to to address that next generation and talk about, you know, Octagonal and Lonro and Piero uh, like might have been possible in, in past generations. And, and gambling and betting, you know, is a trickier subject and topic today than it might have been in the past. So how do we go about addressing these issues in the current state? And, and do you have any thoughts on, on that side of things? If the industry and the administrators of racing are aware of this, they don't appear to be doing anything about it at the moment. And to me, that's a massive challenge. And, and I'm not sure it can be turned around, if at all. And that's what worries me the most. I mean, uh, we've got we've got an environment now where uh, the next generation is coming through are digital natives. Everything they do from spending money to engaging with friends to watching uh, content is all done on their phones. Racing kind of says it's thinking in that space. Wagering certainly is thinking in that space. But are they moving quick enough to make them a, a palatable entertainment option for you know the, the kids who are currently anywhere from 13 through to, to 23? I'm not sure that they are. And that's uh, the thing that really bothers me is that uh, by the time, uh, you know, 20, 30 years from now, <laughs> and I'm uh, well and truly uh, retiring out of out of this space, um, will it be too late? Has the damage already been done? Uh, because at the moment, racing is still a massive business. I mean, in Australia, I think it's over 20 million Australian dollars a year. When you look at other regions, around the world, uh, it's, it's a major, major uh, business um, from both the wagering and bloodstock perspective, but it's not growing. Uh, we're seeing more sports emerge. We're seeing new markets emerging, uh, regulated markets uh, opening up all the time. And, and the thing that's happening in those spaces is that um, 
it's the rival sports, it's esports that are moving and being far more aggressive in their marketing strategies than, than what racing is. So the big the big concern I've got is the damage may already be done. Uh, and, and when you've got a, a generation coming through that is already predominantly anti-animals being used in, in a sport environment, it's going to be very, very hard to maintain the levels that racing currently does for the long term. Um, it needs to evolve. It needs to partner. It needs to look at ways that it can be um, open to partnerships with uh, rival sports, rival, you know, uh, new emerging um, uh, environments like the esports environment. Because you've got to start an education process with the younger people very, very early if you want them to have some level of interest in it as a, as a sport, as a, as a long-term opportunity. Yeah, and, and to take a leaf out of your optimistic playbook, how do we go about reaching those fans? And let's just take you know the Derby Day crowd who literally pack into a car park. Tens of thousands of fans go for a... It's not a race. It's a cultural day out, more than a racing day out. And, you know, they're not betting with on-course bookies, really. They might bet on their phone if they are. Um, they're there once or maybe twice a year to experience, uh, let's say, racing. How do we go about reaching and attracting those fans to be more than just, you know, once-a-year type fans who, who aren't there for really a racing experience? You ask a really important question there, and I think it comes back to uh, there's a I mean there's a catchphrase that's used a lot at the moment about, um, in particular in the content space, about authenticity. Um, racing over the last fifteen to twenty years has built itself as a, as a destination point where you can dress up and you can live the high life. It's still in a way an attachment to the sport of kings, and you know you go to the derby and you you, you look you look fabulous. You've got the the best clothes you can get and you've got some money in your pocket and you, you want to go have a, a beer with your mates or champagne or, you know, you, you try to live the high life. You're living above and beyond what your normal means may necessarily be. No other sport's really going down that path. Every other sport that is becoming really relevant, particularly to younger generations, is just showing their players who they are in an environment that they excel at. Uh, so I think the culture shift has got to be not from trying to say, come to the derby, and be in a marquee and look a million dollars and hopefully you'll back a winner. I think we need to really go back to start telling the story as to what racing's all about. And for most people, it's, uh, you know, for those who work in the game, it's telling the story of the, the horse and trying to build a, an affinity in that regard and showcase the amount of uh, employment opportunities that exist in the sport. It's not always sexy, but it becomes real. And I think that's where racing probably needs to focus a lot more on. It's not just about a Royal Ascot or a Melbourne Cup Carnival. It's got to be more than that. If you look at what the NBA's done, the NFL's done, um, uh, you know, the, the soccer leagues around the world, even the AFL, so much of their storytelling is now about bringing it back to the participants and, and the people at the grassroots level because that's where the connection really begins. And I think maybe we've spent too long in horse racing talking about the high life uh, rather than really showcasing what it's all about and, and how you can build real connection and touch points. And I'd, I'd like to see more of a shift that way where that authenticity starts to become um, a real driver. That's probably the only way I can see the ship being slowly turned into a direction that it should be going. What role do you think betting should play or could play or might play in this discussion? Because I don't think it's realistic to take you know, the regular Derby Day fan and turn them into a a punter that's on Betfair and in trading, you know, in the, the depths of winter on a Wednesday. But it's it's an interesting one because many would say it needs to be the core 
core product and then others want it to be a, a an ancillary side aspect to all of this so what what place do you think betting has in all of this no it has to be front and center i think you know there's a, a misnomer that exists in a lot of uh, parts of the world and i think the uk is probably a perfect example where betting is one thing and, and racing in the participants is another my, my approach is it's a hand in glove environment betting and racing are united racing exists because of betting uh, betting has become an opportunity globally predominantly because of horse racing so they are intrinsically linked i think you've just got to make betting a really enjoyable option through the horse racing game uh, one of the challenges i think that exists um, I'll use australian horse racing as an example um, you know there's certainly great opportunities in the fixed odds environment uh, in Australia for people to to place a bet and know that I'm backing this horse at uh, $4 and if it wins, I'm getting this as my return. But there's still a huge opportunity that exists in the in what I like to call the life-changing betting space. So, you know, we haven't seen a, a rejuvenation of the paramutual model in Australia for a long period of time. But could you imagine if, if Australian racing started having a, a national tote pool and mega jackpots and, and all those sort of things, all of a sudden, you can create a buzz and an excitement around betting opportunities that would attract um, uh, younger people, you know, with, with an idea that they can invest $10 on, on a bet and perhaps walk away uh, with $100,000 because uh, a, a multi-payout uh, system has, has, has unfolded in their way. I think that's where the opportunity exists, but you can't, in my view, say that betting is over there in the right-hand side and racing and the participants are over there on the left-hand side. They're in it together. Racing funding comes from betting. So every decision around programming and, and, and all those sort of things has to have betting in the mindset, just as trainers and owners and breeders need to be educated that the program exists in this way because people bet on it. And you've also then got to prepare a horse to, to work to that. So you can't have this uh, polar opposite approach. Everyone has to be united. And I think particularly when it comes from a betting perspective, if we're seeing people now emerge into the wagering environment by betting on sports or by esports in numbers greater than ever before, then racing's got to be savvy enough that it can tap into that and try and bring some, some of those punters across to, to bet on racing um, uh, long term. And I think, you know, again, the opportunity's there. You just need people actually aligned and thinking, how do we make this happen? I want to pick your brain on the the broadcast of racing because it's it's changed a lot and it's it's no longer just sort of Melbourne Cup day where you get a, a unique camera angle uh, or trying different things there's you know sectional times have evolved and you'll see them on screen now but as sort of fans at the track dwindle generally and obviously with with the covid world as well I think the the vast majority are shifting to watching on racing.com or on their phone or on their their computer or TV at home Take me through the evolution of, of that and just how you see the overall viewing experience for the regular punter at home and, and how that's going to look like. Again, a really good question. And it's probably one of the um, uh, advantages that have come out of this global pandemic uh, through COVID that's you know destroyed uh, so much opportunity and so on. But there are, you can often see a few little rays of, of, of light emerge through the darkness. And I think sports coverage and horse racing can really take opportunities in that space. I think there's been a reconnection um, in, in vast numbers that sport and racing means a lot to people. Um, so coverage means a lot to people. Where racing's got a, a bigger challenge compared to um, probably other sports is that if you look at Victoria in Australia as an example, so just one state in Australia, 
Horse racing has, I think, about 73 uh, venues uh, in that state alone. 73 venues that require infrastructure, that require, uh, you know, all of the bits and pieces that go into to a broadcast. It all costs money. It all costs, uh, you know, it's all challenging and, and technically challenging and so on. So I think there, there can often be a, a perception where people say, uh, you know, we want drone vision uh, above uh, every race and we want sectional times and we want this and we want that. And that's great. It's Everyone's entitled to have those wants. But the great challenge that racing has got is that it has too, uh, too much of a footprint from a stadia perspective compared to other sports. You know, you've seen, uh, use the AFL as an example, where once upon a time, uh, you know, go back 20, 25 years, I think there were 11 or 12 uh, venues in Victoria for, for, for VFL, AFL football. That got brought back to predominantly now three, where you've got the MCG, um, uh, Docklands and, and Geelong. And then one of the main reasons they, they did that was because they needed to save on costs. They wanted to do more from an infrastructure perspective. So you've got to make some tough calls. So if racing wants to become far more innovative, it's probably going to have to make some really tough calls around the amount of venues that it operates in, or it's going to have to make it clearly discernible that there's five top venues that get everything from sectional times to drone vision to, uh, you know, track readings that give you penetrometers or moisture readings or wind direction and all those sort of things. And the rest don't get it, but they're not considered high level tier meetings or, or so on. Because, you know, we're seeing other sports uh, really push hard in this space. Uh, we're seeing esports push hard in this space. Horse racing has got to be a part of that. But the, the one thing that's excited me over the last uh, 12 months is that with COVID and, and the pandemic, everyone's really understanding that sport and racing, those sort of events actually unite communities again. So it's, it's really important. I think there's, there's been a resurgence in, in the value of that. Um, but again, the pressure is now going to come on to the industry to start making some really significant calls to make sure it's at the head of the game. You know, that it can give your audience the highest levels of expectations because to, to a, a viewer, if you're a fan of racing, tuning in on a Tuesday night realistically should be no different to tuning in on a Saturday afternoon or uh, or, or a Sunday uh, afternoon. You know, your expectation levels need to be met across the, the board. There needs to be a higher level of the bare minimum. And I think that will come, but to, to deliver on that, there's going to have to be some really strong calls, particularly from an infrastructure perspective. How soon do you think we're looking at that type of discussion? You know, the idea that we would have, you know, Flemington, Caulfield, Mooney Valley and, and a few tracks on a Victoria, Victorian racing circuit, let's say, uh, you know, pick one or two or three others rather than having a, a vast array of different tracks involved. Uh, is that something that we're going to be doing soon? Because I think just generally, you know, the nature of scale at, at racing, you see things like trainers where, you know, the vast majority of horses seem to end up at, at the Waller, the Weir, and the Waterhouse-type stables. So I think you see that naturally happening, and I also think that some more discussions probably need to be had when it comes to pushing the envelope a little bit. So I'm curious on your thoughts, at least my point of view, is it doesn't seem like it's accelerating that quickly, but um, but how do you see this one evolving? Oh, look, give the industry credit. It certainly is being discussed, but I think the, the challenge that... Um, racing has and probably more so than other industries because racing you've got to remember is a major funding source not only for the industry itself and, and the wagering environment but is also a major funding source for government through uh, taxation and so on so with all of those mechanisms comes a lot of layers of bureaucracy 
So it makes it very hard for a lot of decisions to be made. So, I mean, uh, I'm not picking on uh, on Victorian racing. Um, I'm just referencing this because I was based in, in Victoria when I was in Australia. But you think about Victorian thoroughbred racing. You've got Racing Victoria as the principal authority. You've got the VRC, the MRC, uh, Mooney Valley as the three metropolitan clubs. You've got Country Racing Victoria. You've got Trainers Associations, Jockeys Associations, Owners Associations, Breeders Associations. The list goes on. So to make big decisions, quite often you need someone who can just get in and say, this is what we're doing and you're coming along for the journey. But when you've got a lot of stakeholder interest groups that need to be met, it can really slow progress. So I think there's a lot of people internally that know what needs to be done. It's managing the politics around that to deliver an outcome that satisfies the many, um, that slows things down. And I think hopefully we'll get to a stage, and, and the challenge is going to be when the pressure points really arise over the next two or three years, because in 2024 is the next wagering licence deal in Australia where you know, it comes back to, um, at the moment, Tadcor are the incumbent. They've got the retail exclusivity uh, and so on. In 2024, that licence comes up for, for renewal. It impacts not only thoroughbred racing, but also harness and greyhound racing, and it will also have broader impacts in the, in the total wagering environment. But depending on the offers that come to the table for that in a whole new world where the shift has been from retail very much to digital and so on, if, if the monies, if the coffers are not going to be met or filled the way that they've been done in the past, then the pressure's going to come on that some really, really tough calls need to be made. You mentioned earlier about uh, stables and how they operate and so on. I mean, there's a big groundswell at the moment about wanting to shift training hours. You know, some of the biggest names in Australian racing are saying they don't believe they can sustain starting training at 3am anymore and, and concluding it by 7am. And then you've got the full days afterwards. They can't meet staffing arrangements and so on. Well, the pressure is going to come back on the industry to either support that. And if that means they need to change the landscape, well, it means they're probably going to have to move training bases out of the major metropolitan tracks. And to do that, it means they're probably going to have to invest in creating alternate training setups. So there's and I know for a fact that these things are being discussed on a regular basis. The problem that we've got with racing is the layers of bureaucracy and the processes that need to be employed rather than someone just coming in and saying, this is what we're doing and we're going to deliver on it. It takes time. And I just, the, 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 the frustration from my perspective is I'm not sure that we have that much time at the, the moment because of how many other sports and wagering opportunities and entertainment opportunities that continually emerge. It's just going to keep putting more and more pressure on racing. Yeah, I think you're right. And I want to head back to racing.com just for a moment. And I want to pick your brain a bit on on the general user and, and what resonated with them and, and what you know what they, they enjoyed most or what some of the areas were. Because there's obviously the get on sort of tips and banter style uh, of show. There's sort of the features, you know, the racing feature shows as well. Or there's the, the deep form analysis. I think um, Matt and Ben do some stuff now still when it comes to that. What was the general punter or the general user most interested in from an engagement point of view? No, I think you can't look at it just as was there one touch point. I think you've got to create, when you've got an asset like racing.com, which, again, uh, I'm phenomenally proud of what we built. Uh, not everything was perfect, but we always tried to be the best we could under, you know, quite often at times very testing circumstances because I don't think, you know, the public doesn't need to know uh, the, the pressures that you're under in trying to transfer transfer on the business from being a digital only into a broadcast and so on. Like, 
you know, particularly when you had a, an environment where the audience loved what was on offer with TVN and they loved what was on offer with Sky Racing as the, as the broadcaster beforehand, and then that got taken away from them. And then you're trying to start something again afresh with new faces and new approaches. So it was an enormous challenge. You're trying to meet audience expectations, but you can't just be, you've got too many different groups that have different wants and needs and desires out of a, an asset like racing.com. So what you've got to create as much as possible is a content architecture or a structure in place that if you are a fan of wagering, so most of your listeners are, are all about the wagering environment, you've got to create as many opportunities as possible for them to come into shows like Get On, which is a bit more lighthearted. You certainly get some really great um, uh, analysis and, and form information, but the show is done in a way that is fun and light and entertaining. Then you've got shows like Sectional Stars, which focuses on sectional time analysis. It's not about you know, how a horse parades in the yard. It's about the insight that can be provided by understanding the timing mechanism of a race and what that can provide you. Um, then you've got other shows you know, that emerge from that. Uh, you know, I was always the anchor of, of a lot of our major editorial programming, so you know, a show that was, uh, I was passionate about after the last that show there had a different audience. Now, I know that it was not always going to appeal to the Get On audience, but it was never intended to. But if you were interested in racing news, opinion, debate, and so on, you would tune into After the Last. If you've got a passion for country racing, you would tune into, you know, our country shows. The list goes on. So you've got to create as many options. The one thing that we had as an advantage with racing.com is that when you've got a, a free-to-wear television channel, uh, you've got a lot of what we call spectrum, you know, availability on the channel to do things. Um, and our approach would be we create something for the broadcast, but it's also got to be something that can be easily consumed across our digital channels, so on the racing.com uh, website uh, or app, as well as what we did on social media to look at other ways of engaging with audience. And, and I think we did that really well. I think we were clearly... Uh, a global leader in our approach and a lot of those things and I can say that uh, now that I've, you know, I'm based over in Europe and I, I, I meet it with a lot of people. They, they say that you know, the work that we did at racing.com inspired them for a lot of the, the coverage that they've done in, in different racing regions. So it works but you can't just sit there and say it's all about getting the punter right. Getting the punter content right is super important and making sure that you've got uh, a, a wagering opportunity for people to bet on racing and understand it's super important because that's what funds the sport. But for breeders, they've got to have something that makes them satisfied that they're being covered, that owners are being covered, that jockeys are being covered, the list goes on. So provided you've got enough touch points across the board, you're going to satisfy as many people in, in that marketing space as, as possible. So now that you've been able to step away and observe from afar, let's say, has there been anything, you know, in racing generally, in the industry generally, that's, that's excited you, that surprised you, that's, that stood out now that you're not, you know, in the day-to-day -day and you're not doing things as closely as you were? Has that perspective changed your viewpoint a little bit uh, when it comes to the industry? I think one thing that's really um, positive, and it's not just from racing, but we're certainly seeing this quite heavily with racing. Um, they're embracing social media in a way that a lot of other sports are um, – still kind of working their way through but just really wanting to put the customer right at the heart of, of the thought process um, uh, I think that is something that I've really noticed uh, you know the more sport that I'm consuming because as much as um, you know I, I've always been a fan of all sports and you know I watch a lot of, of content and trying to engage in as much content as possible 
working in Australia at racing.com and, and being not only a, an on-air uh, personality for the business, but also one of the part of the executive management team, I was very, very much in a bubble around what we were doing and, and focusing on that. But when you can step away, you can see that there are a lot of things that, that we were doing that was ahead of the game. There are a few things that were behind the game. But we're seeing a shift across all sports now uh, in the media space to try and be as engaging and take their own content to the fans rather than just rely straight up on traditional media rights deals. You know, it comes back to that word. It's it's a bit wanky at times, but I think it, it means a lot. And that is about the authenticity of, of the content creation process and the delivery of that to try and really take your fans into the heart of, of what the sport is and what matters. The more that you do that, I think the more opportunity you've got of true engagement and getting them to come on a, a long-term journey with you. Um, and, and I'm seeing that it doesn't matter whether it's uh, horse racing, it doesn't matter whether it's tennis, uh, golf, uh, you know, Formula One's done a phenomenal job over the past 12 months uh, through the COVID um, period in that space, um, you know, and it's a high-end sport. Uh, but the list goes on. Um, but I think that's going to be the real trend going forward is, is how you can bring your audience and your fan base into the inner sanctum of, of what you're offering. Uh, that will become uh, a real crucial part of, of success or failure uh, in the content space for, for a lot of these sports. So it must have been tough to, to leave it all behind and, and, and try something else and, and cross the globe and do something different because clearly you can hear hear the passion in your voice and obviously building the platform and racing.com and then transforming that. You know, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears, I'm sure, that, that went into it. So tell me about the next phase, the decision making that, that goes into some, something like that and, and leaving it behind. Um, it comes down to a couple of things. Look, I love sport. I love horse racing. I love media. Um, and I've, I've been really um, thrilled that I've been able to play a part in it in a variety of different ways. And I think that's what it comes down to is as you evolve in life, what is going to be the, the next steps? Um, when, I, when I started out, you know, I, my angle was always, uh, you know, what could I offer the coverage uh, when I first started out? What is my point of difference or what, is, what can I bring to to the business, you know, uh, initially it was an editorial approach and a style that wasn't really in the market at the time when I started. Um, and then I was trying to add that into what I like to think was a savviness in the business space and trying to evolve a media landscape. Um, you know, I loved being a commentator, but I never had aspirations that I wanted to be a commentator my, my whole career. And, you know, I, I don't mean this uh, full of ego, but, I, I you know, I, I do think I was a very good uh, broadcaster in, in, as an anchor and as a, as a host and an interviewer. But at the same time, you know, when I first started out, um, it was very hard to, to get a go. And I always wanted my legacy not to be that I anchored coverage for 50 years, but my legacy to be I gave opportunities for as many people as possible who had a passion and a skill to be in that space to get their chance. You know, same as, as being a content creator, um, you know, trying to change the way that content is consumed and produced and also as an administrator, being able to evolve a business and so on. So at racing.com, uh, you know, for the five years that I was there, we had had a lot of change and, and more than satisfied with how everything was going. And, you know, as I said, I could have stayed there for, for longer if I wanted to, but was that providing me with the necessarily uh, necessary job satisfaction or, or opportunity for where I wanted to take my career? No, because I, I, I wasn't really being able to, to push myself any more uh, other than what I was doing. Um, so to make that call, uh, 
it, it's got to be done for the right reasons. And for me, it was like, yeah, I've, I've achieved everything that was on my my wish list in this space. I'm more than happy to now go and, and try something. And I was lucky enough to be given an opportunity to join a, a very, very progressive, smart, savvy uh, sports media business um, here in Denmark called Better Collective, which has got offices in, in nine locations around the world. And it's giving me uh, opportunities to, to, to harness and, and, and expand on the skills that I've already uh, developed back in Australia and now put it into a, a slightly different space. And I'm hoping, you know, in, in three years, five years, whatever the time will be, there'll probably be another transformation. Uh, but I'm not the person that just wants to sit in one role or in one spot for, for my life. I, I want to be able to challenge and, and push myself and give opportunities for other people. And, and that's the driver. So to leave racing.com, yeah, it was, you know, it was emotionally challenging, but at the same time, it was the right thing to do. And, and nothing makes me happier than when I tune into racing.com from afar and I can see some of the talent we gave an opportunity to really flourish and, and thrive. It shows that you were doing the right thing. You were creating the right structure, the right environment, the right, um, uh, you know, just the opportunity. And, and hopefully that will continue for a long, long time to come. So before we, we wrap up, I definitely want to ask you about whether or not you got the opportunity to, to soak it in and enjoy some of the, the more memorable things throughout your, your time, whether it's you know off the track, but, but more so on the track when it comes to Black Caviar, you know, Winks and those Cox plates, Maccabi Diva and, and the Cups. Were you able to, to sit back and enjoy it a little bit at that time, you know, obviously being in amongst it all, or, or is it something now that you get to look back fondly on and are there some moments that stand out from your time which you, you know, you really get to, to soak in now and, and thoroughly enjoy? Oh, so much. Uh, a lovely question to ask, Jake, because, um, you know, first and foremost, uh, I was a fan and a, a lover of the sport. So when you actually get into a position where, you know, you're a part of the, the engine room of the broadcast of something that you love so much, it, it was, you know, for me, it was just amazing. You know, as I said earlier, uh, my, my love for racing came from time spent with family, you know, my, my, my parents, my grandparents and so on. So, you know, we'd go to, to major race days and then to eventually be the anchor of a, a coverage of, say, the Melbourne Cup or, or to anchor the coverage of Winks winning four Cox plates, uh, to see Black Caviar, to see Frankel, um, all those things were, were fantastic. Um, but probably the, the, the one moment in a way that stands above and beyond everything else was was when we, we really launched racing.com um, and to see the way, you know, it's, it's probably not a, a sexy answer to your question, but just from a, a perspective of the energies and the efforts and everything that went into the team to create something and turn something around so quickly. So when we eventually went live on Mimsy Stakes Day uh, 2015 and we were lucky enough to get Bruce McAvaney over from Channel 7 to, to help anchor our coverage and, and to work alongside Bruce, but to to see how things then developed so quickly and that spring carnival where we had Michelle Payne winning the Melbourne Cup, uh, we had uh, Winks winning her first Cox Plate, um, yeah, the list goes on. It just they're all, they're all memorable moments, but just that, that first spring of when the pressure was really on us and, uh, and probably we had quite a few people out there hoping that we'd fail just to, it was almost like a, you know, a told you so type scenario, but to actually come out on top and then see the business build momentum and grow and, and bring so many new talent through and that was just really really special but I mean I've been blessed enough I've followed horse racing all my life and I've been lucky enough to go to some great races around the world I've been lucky enough to be a part owner a horse that won a group one so I've been lucky in that environment I've got so many exciting um, uh, things that I've, I've been a part of 
but from a professional sense, that first spring carnival in 2015, when we really were under enormous pressure to deliver product and content of the highest standard, you know, in the in the biggest theatre that there is in Australian racing, that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. So I, I must I must add, I personally selfishly am benefiting from the app racing.com and the website and all the terrific content that still gets pushed out and it's all free it's not geo-blocked it's very easy to use and access and it's uh you know high definition and all that great stuff so it's kind of nice um to have that so thank you for that thank you for your time and sharing on this podcast some of your views and perspectives it's been it's been great uh and i do hope sincerely that we're we're not going to lose you to racing full-time really appreciate the time jake and i think you know the the next few months few years ahead for, for racing certainly going to be the the time that sets us up as to uh, whether it be able to thrive or or under enormous pressure but let's hope uh, things go the way that we want them to 